0: Uh, Welcome to this church, the Anglican Church of St. George. This church has been, not this church, but an Anglican church has been on the site since 1900. You can tell that there's a banner up there since (laughs) 1900s. Uh, and it was built as a memorial church to the British soldiers who died here in 1864. Uh, by the 1960s, they'd worked out that actually probably it should be for everyone who died here. So when they built the porch, and you walk through that the porch, the entranceway, uh, was built in memory of the Maori who died here. And then in 1992, the old church, mostly, while well, there was a fire, it didn't burn down, but it was pretty badly damaged. The only bits of the old church are the entranceway and that little piece out the back. Uh, So this new church was built in 1993. If you think it's a lockwood, you're right, it is. Uh, And uh, this church was built in memory of all those who fought and died here, Maori and British. So welcome to this place. Uh, The story of this church has always been uh, part of the story of what happened on the site 150 years ago. Uh, So I'm going to tell you a bit about that story. Um, Our patron saint, Anglican Churches are named mostly after saints, and uh, our patron saint is St George. So if you know anything about St George, you'll know that he's the patron saint of England, he's the guy with the Red Cross on a white background, and he's also patron saint of British Armed Forces. (coughs) And he has been since the time of Richard the Lionheart, way, way, way back in the... Well, before anyone can even remember, really, it was a long time ago, uh, who was an English king who went off and fought in the Middle East in the Crusades. But actually, St. George wasn't English. He was actually a Greek person who grew up in Palestine. And he was also the patron saint of Palestinians. And his father was a Roman soldier. He worked for the Roman Emperor in the Roman Emperor's own bodyguard. So he lived about 300. And he was actually a friend of the Roman Emperor. And George and his father and his mother were Christians, which mostly was okay, but if you know anything about the Roman Empire, every now and again was a little problematic because uh, they decided they blamed blame the Christians for various things and then they got fed to lions and all sorts of other brutal things. So uh, when George's father died, Uh, George went off to Turkey where the Roman Emperor was based and he too joined uh, the Roman Emperor's personal army and he became a senior officer in that army and also befriended the Emperor. The Emperor's name was Diocletian and he was the last Emperor to uh, have a persecution of Christians. And he said that all Christians, even the Roman soldiers, had to uh, sacrifice to the Emperor. And that if they did not sacrifice to the emperor, they were going to be put to death. So, uh, George said, George was a, as the officer in charge, was the one who had to order that his fellow soldiers who were Christians were to be put to death. So, he went to the emperor and he told him, A, he wasn't going to do it, because he was a Christian. And secondly, that what the emperor was doing was wrong, and he should not do it. And because he told the emperor that, and because he was a Christian and would not sacrifice to the emperor, even though he was a friend of the empress, he too was put to death in a very slow, excruciating way. And his body was taken back to Palestine, and his grave is still there. It's very close to the main airport when you fly into Israel. And that, too, is looked after by Muslims and Christians, both groups of Palestinians. And this is a Muslim saying that is attributed, or is about St. George, and it says the righteous way is to say what is just in the face of the tyrants. He died because he said to the Emperor, what you were doing is wrong. When we made St. George our patron saint, 114 years ago, it was done because we were, that was the first time New Zealanders had gone overseas to fight for the British Empire, and gone to South Africa to fight for the anglo boer War. There was a great lot of patriotism and rah, ra rah, the British Empire. But actually he's a very good patron saint for us because what we do here is to say what happened here 150 years ago was wrong and that we should have found another way to start our relationship here. So what did happen here 150 years ago? Before I tell you that story, uh, we sell this book. Uh, this is for the adults. It's $5. It's by the, uh, just on the other side of that wall there. You just leave the money in the little church. It has a little bit about the story I'm about to tell you and about the church. So that's my little promo out of the way. Back to the story. So who was here on the 29th of April? Did anyone come on to the events on that day? Anyone stand in front of that haka of 800 strong people? Anyone in the haka? Anyone in the haka? Anyone stand in front of it? No? It was pretty awesome, wasn't it? I don't know what you thought about the speeches afterwards. I was right, I snuck onto the back of the, as I was doing a speech, I snuck onto the back of that little group of people that got to face those 800 people. And it was uh, pretty amazing to have that haka just meet us in front of you. And I was very glad that all the warriors down the back uh, went and had a cup of tea. Before I spoke, I was a little bit nervous about my speech with all those guys behind me, with their fake shotguns. You could tell they were fake because they had little red tags on them. They didn't have the red tags, they weren't allowed to bring their shotguns. So, it was a pretty, I thought it was, a, it was a long day, but it was a pretty amazing day. Did you all have a look at men on? Worked out who they all are? If you know who they all are, if you tell me afterwards, because I still haven't worked out who they all are. But they're pretty amazing and one day there are going to be clerks down there that tell you who they all are, and there's going to be clerks up by the trees that tell you what happened to those carpets there. So it was a pretty big day, but why did we have that day? What's the story behind it? Why would we want to commemorate the battle that happened here 150 years ago? Well, to learn about that battle, we have to go all the way back to this event. Anyone tell me what this event is? I think you were first. Signing of the Treaty of Waitangi. Indeed. So it all starts here. When the treaty was signed back in 1840, if you were a New Zealander, you were Maori. That was the only people the term New Zealander referred to. And if you were a European living in New Zealand, you were a European. That's what you were called. And there were about between 70 and 100,000 Maori living in New Zealand, and there were about 2,000 Europeans. And all of those Europeans, well, not quite all of them, but most of those Europeans were living under the authority of a Māori chief. So they had to do exactly what the Māori chief said, and they had to obey Māori rules and Māori protocols. But there was an increasing number of European settlers coming to New Zealand, and already up at Russell, there was a European settlement there, and there were no rules. No one had authority over those Europeans. And Māori were concerned about that because they were pretty lawless and lots of bad things happened there. And the British were worried about that, especially with all the settlers that were coming. And so there was a big push to work out a way where British, the British government would have authority over all of those settlers. And so the Treaty of Waitangi was signed and basically everyone understood it in 1840 that the British would be in charge of all the Europeans that the Māori would be in charge of all things Māori, and that those two groups would live side by side. That was the vision behind what happened. And that worked pretty well, actually. It worked until the 1850s. In the 1850s, however, things had changed. By the 1850s, there were about 50,000 European settlers living in New Zealand. So within about 15 years, they'd gone from 2,000 to 50,000. Now, the Maori chiefs who signed the treaty knew that there were settlers on the way, but they had no idea there was that many. And unfortunately, the Maori population had dropped to about 50 to 55,000 as well. Because of some of the diseases we'd brought in, Uh, they didn't have a good effect on the Maori. And so, at that point, the British government allowed the New Zealand settlers to set up their own government. So this government then was going to make rules for everyone, settlers and Maori. The only trouble is, the only people that could be in that government, well, first of all, you had to be a white settler. You had to be European. Second thing you had to be was male. And the third thing you had to be was a landowner. So if you were not European, not male, not a landowner, you had no say in the government. Which means Maori had no say in the government. They still owned most of the land. But this little group of settlers, landed settlers, were making rules that affected them. Now, Maori thought about this and they were also really worried about the amount of land that was being sold for Europeans and they realised that if this kept up they were soon going to have no land and so they came up with a cunning plan and they decided that they would have a king and the idea of the king was that all the Maori tribes would come together under the king, They they would make decisions together and then the king would take their concerns and their decisions and would represent all those tribes to the New Zealand government. The first king who was crowned in 1858 was Te who was a uh, the paramount chief of Tainui over in Waikato. And when he died in 1860 his son Tatio Tāto the 2nd became king. And so King Tuhetia today is a direct descendant of those two men. That line in News through the day. And so a whole lot of tribes signed up to the King movement, including the three tribes on the side of the Kaimais Ngati Ranginui, Ngati Rangi, Ngāti and Ngati Well, the New Zealand government wasn't particularly happy about the fact that the Māori were uniting. They weren't happy about the fact that all those under the King had said, no more land sales, we have enough, be happy. Be chilled with what you have. You're not getting any more from us. And they weren't happy that the Māori had appointed themselves a king. They said, We only have one monarch, and that is Queen Victoria in England. You guys should not have a king. Well, trouble broke out in the, in the Taranaki in, the 18, in 1860, the governor, now in those days, and nowadays, the Prime Minister is all important, John Key. What he thinks pretty much goes, and everyone thinks he's the bee's knees. In those days, the governor was the man with all the power. The the premier, we didn't have a prime minister, we had a premier, he had some power. The government had some power, but the governor, he was appointed by the queen. And so he was the man with all the power. And in 1860, he was a man called Gore Brown, and he He allowed the land sales in Taranaki to go through, even though he knew that actually they weren't dealing with the right people. And that led to all the fighting. So the British British government said, that's not a good situation. And they fired him, and then they appointed this guy, George Gray. George Gray had been our governor. He'd been a big fan of Maori when he had been our governor. Then he'd gone off to South Africa, and he'd been governor there. And then he came back here, but his opinion had changed when he came back. And he asked the British government to send over an army to protect Auckland. And so the British government sent over Lieutenant General... He's a Lieutenant, he's not a Lieutenant. You have to go to America to find Lieutenants. Now part of the world, they're Lieutenants. Lieutenant General Duncan Cameron. Now, Lieutenant General Duncan Cameron was a very experienced soldier. He had fought in the Crimea, which is a, was in Ukraine... Where all the trouble is brewing yet again, uh, he'd fought in India, and now he came out here with his army. He had also fought in Crimea in India. So these aren't settlers who were trained to shoot a gun that he had. These are professional, experienced, hardened British soldiers used to win And he came out here, first and foremost, to protect Auckland, because there were rumours that King... King Tafio was amassing an army and that they were going to attack Auckland and wipe it off the face of the earth. Well he decided that the best way to defend Auckland was to attack Kainui. And So in 1863, after uh, he spent a year building a road from Auckland all the way out to the Bombay Hills, you might, not know, you might know that road is the Great South Road, the military road. Uh, And he built up his army and got all the supplies sorted out, and he got proper ships built that could go up the Waikato River that were armoured and they had guns on them so they could attack the (coughs) park from a different angle and they could be troop carriers. They were specially made for the campaign. Once he had all of that, he attacked and moved his way down Waikato and he got to Narawahia and he said, This is far enough. Māori are defeated, and and, um, Governor Gray said, no, you have to go all the way down to uh, as far as you can go, because actually all the good land for farming was beyond Narawakia. Tainui had lots of wheat farms. They were exporting grain to Auckland and Wellington and all the way across to Australia, and Governor, Governor Gray wanted all that land for European settlers. In the end, the Māori king and all his followers were pushed into what we now call the king country, Ngāti Manipoto. So how did we, over here, end up in a war that was over here? Well first of all, all the tribes here were affiliated to the Kingitanga, so in some way they were supporting what was going on. They too refused to sell any more lands. Also, we're actually really close, which this little arrow shows. Uh, so, it was pretty easy for people and materials and food to get across the Kaimais into the Waikato. And a lot of that stuff was happening. First of all, this area, like the Waikato, uh, is really fertile. We are a really good place to grow food. And the Maori who were here grew a lot of food, a lot of produce, a lot of flax, which was used for rope. And all of that produce was sold to Auckland, Wellington, and exported on Māori ships. They looked like European ships, but they were owned and operated by Māori across to Australia. So they were very wealthy, the Māori here. And some of that food was being shipped across the Kaimais so that these guys here could fight. The second thing was that we had a really good harbour and a good place for ships to anchor here at Tapuna. If you were an American in 1863 or 1863, or you were actually a big fan of the British. Nowadays they get on quite well, but in the 1860s, they hated each other. About 80 years earlier, they had fought a big war between each other and they fought another war after that. And so Americans liked to kind uh, of undermine everything that the British were involved in. And so if you were an American trader, you could come here with guns, shotguns or muskets, and you could sell those shotguns or muskets to the Maori for their food, which they did. And those shotguns and muskets ended up over here in the Waikato. Also, there was a big supply of gunpowder here. Also, this was the main road to the East Coast. East Coast Māori couldn't come through Rotorua, because Rotorua Māori, Te Arawa, had said, we will support British crowns. We will not support Kingitanga. And so they blocked all Māori coming through the main road, which would have been there, and so they'd come along the coast and across. And so quite a number of Ngāti Kuro and Whānau Apanui and other tribes were coming down here and across the Kaimais to join the fighting. And last of all, Gray and the New Zealand government had worked out where they wanted new settlements. And one of those places they wanted that settlement was here in Kauranga. They decided that this area would be a really good place to put a new town of European settlers. The only trouble is, the Maori kept saying we will not sell. In January 1864, this guy was sent here. Colonel Greer. Greerton is named after him. And he was sent here with about 600 troops and three ships. And his job was to stop all food, all guns, all gunpowder, all people crossing the Kaimais from Todoga. Well, when he arrived, the leaders here were not at all sure why he had been sent here. Well, I'm supposed to talk about him first. We'll talk about him first. When he came here, the first thing he did was set up his camp around the mission station. Have you guys been to the Elms? Who's been to the Elms? Anyone? 1838, this guy came. His name is Alfred Nesbitt Brown, Archdeacon Brown. He was the missionary here. And he came here uh, to uh, establish an Anglican outpost and to convert Māori to Christianity. That was his job. But he did it by teaching them all sorts of things. And so when he arrived, uh, he negotiated with Māori for the use of uh, the land down at the end which we would now call Tauranga City. He bought, or he thought he bought all of that. Maori didn't understand bought to be the same as we do, but they certainly let him use it for a fee, big fee. And then later on he arranged to buy or to use all the land up to here. So this was all mission land. From here all the way down to the sea, he owned and operated. And all the land from here back was Maori land. And to stop the cows and the sheep that belonged to Māori from mixing with the cows and the sheep that mixed with the missionaries and the other settlers, they dug a trench all the way across this peninsula. It was an old Scottish way of doing farming. If you don't have many trees, dig a trench. And there was a gate in the middle of that trench where Māori could cross and, and the missionaries could cross. And most of his missionary endeavors were actually through education. So he taught Māori how to read and write. He taught them European agricultural techniques. He taught them agricultural building techniques. Uh, He taught them European uh, cooking and sewing and all those kind of things. And so basically what he set up was a polytech. And through that he taught them about Christianity. And so most of the Māori, or a big percentage of the Māori in this area by the time of 1864 were either Anglican or Catholic, and they had no, they kind of decided not to fight anymore. But when Colonel Grey arrived here, the first thing he did was set up his military camp all around Archdeacon Brown's mission house, which is the Elms, that's the house that he built, and his chapel and his library. So Marty then couldn't get to see Brown very easily anymore. So and that's what it all looked like back in 1864. Soffa Point didn't exist there, and that was built much later. So all the sea came right up to the cliff underneath the elms. You see all the military camps? So that's where Tauranga City is now. Looks a bit different then, doesn't it? I think that's the military redoubt there. So there were two redoubts built, Monmouth and Durham. Now, when these guy's arrived, we're going to have to divide you up. Now, I want you guys to pretend that you're the Maori, and I want you guys to pretend that you're the British forces. So, when the British arrived, Maori weren't really sure why they were here. And so, their leader was a guy called Rauwari Puhirake. And he got one of his fellow chiefs, fellow leaders, Komatua, a guy called (coughs) Henawe Karatoa, Henarei Tanatoa, I'm going to talk a bit more about him later, but he was actually trained to be an ancient minister. So he was fluent in Māori and English, he could read and write in both. So he wrote all the letters for Rāwari and Hirake. And so he kept writing to Colonel Berea and saying, why have you come? So you guys are going to say that, I'm um, going to count three, and you're going to say all together, why have you come? And I want you guys to say nothing at all, Right, okay? Can you do that? Try that. One, two, three. Why oh, you come? Then they listened for the reply and they waited for it. And there wasn't one. So they, they wrote again and said, Why oh, you come? But with more feeling. And again, no response. So I tried it a third time. One, two, three. Why oh, you come? Much better. And again, silence. No reply. So at that point, Kouroud said, these guys must have come to fight. And we have to, because there's a lot more of them than us, we need to work out the best place to fight them. So they built a path out, I think it was out towards Welcome Bay, and then they sent a message to, to Colonel Greer, and they said, come out to fight. So I want you to say, come out to fight when I count three, and I want you guys this time to just say no, okay? One, two,
1: three. Come no
0: out of spice. Spice. No. no. Oh, Cameron said, this is great news, fantastic. They had some really good victories at the Waikaro, but nothing really crushing. He hadn't been able to smash them out. He hadn't been able to obliterate them off the face of the earth. He hadn't been able to really destroy the king movement. And he thought that here, he could destroy the king movement. And so he came down here with another thousand troops. Now, this is what faced them. That is the hill of Kehinehina, looking from down the road. Why was this a good place to have a battle? Well, the first reason is because here is the highest point. It's all downhill, down to the sea. So the British were going to have to come up, up to this point. The second, And that meant they couldn't see what was happening here. They built that flimsy palisade, which meant basically they had no idea what was happening. In the 1860s as well, if you went down that hill, you wouldn't find housing and roads, you would find water. Toronga Harbour went up each side all the way up into the Kainais. So there was no easy way for the troops to come round behind. They had to come through this path. So it was really defendable, it was on a strategic site, and it was going to be a good place to have this battle. What the British forces couldn't see was that behind that vest, the Maori were digging a pretty complicated trench network. Now they had a guy called Penny Tucker, and he, when he was younger, had been up north, and he'd been involved in the trench making that had gone on there in the 1840s uh, at, the, uh, at the at the par there, and so he knew about how to make trenches. Maori knew very early on that when your enemy has cannon and Muskets that being in a normal par was bad news because the bullets and the cannonballs went through the parsees. So they worked out pretty quickly that you needed to have trenches that got you out of the way of those little nasty projectiles. And so they became very good at building trenches. And so this is what Penny Tucker designed for Gate Park. And it's really good, it's got these little sawtooth rifle pits in here. Which meant if a shell lands in there and explodes, it only kills the people in in that area, not everyone along the trench, which would happen if it was just one long trench. And it's got this little doorway here, which meant you could go from one trench network to the other without ever going up onto the top ground. It's also really complicated, as you will be able to see there which meant that once the British got into those trenches, they quickly were going to get lost. You actually had to know what was happening and how that trench network worked so you could keep oriented. And the last thing that was pretty, well, there were a few things, was they actually covered a few of these trenches with raupo, which is kind of shrubbery, like Manaka. And uh, that meant people could walk on it, but it meant you could shoot up through it. (coughs) It meant that your defenders were hidden. And the last thing they did was they put this flag, it's the same flag that's flying outside now, they actually put it well behind the trenches. So when the British artillery started, more artillery, they aimed at the flag, which was actually nowhere near the trenches. And it took a while for the British gunners to work out that actually the flag wasn't their target. Well, Colonel Cameron, General Cameron, there he is with his hands in his pockets, Came along. Did any of you go down to the domain to see the, the howitzers and the artillery being let off? Not many of you. Well, you were down on a great tree, I got to fire the cannon. So that was kind cool. These things here are amazing. They look really small, but they're packed with gunpowder and they make out a huge boom and they fire exploding shells up. And into the trenches, the they were probably their most effective weapon. Then they had these things here. I think that's about a twenty-pound Armstrong. These are state-of-the-art artillery. They've got um, spirals in the in the uh, barrels, so that actually they can direct the shell accurately. They're proper shells, not cannibals, so they they um, explode uh, when they hit the ground. These ones actually. Um, were designed, that fuses on them so they went over and then they were above the trenches and exploded and showered the fragments. So they were filled up with all sorts of sharp bits of metal that would kind of do nasty things to you if they ever got there. And they also brought this thing. This is kind of like having the latest missile at your disposal. This is state of the art weaponry in 1864. It's a 110 pound navy gun. Breach loading, which meant the shells go in the back. And it was amazing. But, and it came from a Navy ship. So it was the only time it was used in New Zealand, because it was the only time the battle was close enough to the coast that they could drag off the ship all the way up. But it had a problem. Can anyone see what problem this massive gun would have? Yep? Very clever. Because it takes four or five goes. It doesn't elevate. It's for shooting straight from one ship to another to destroy the ship alongside you. But this is higher. And they can't elevate that. They can't lift up the front so it can actually get into these trenches. And so when they fired that, it hit the hill in front and then a lot of the shells skipped off and landed in Greerton and Green Park. They probably killed some of the British soldiers that were hiding behind there. It certainly killed some of the British soldiers over the next 30 or 40 years. And about five or six years ago, they had to close Green Park School because they found one of its shells in the playground. And they had to close the school, get rid of all the kids and then get rid of that shell. So it looked amazing and it would have made a lot of noise, but actually it was useless. Well, on the 28th of April, General Cameron marched his troops up the road behind the whole of the drummers. So we had the drummers out here on the 29th, and some of us marched up behind the drummers. And then he did a little fake attack on the path. So they had a little fake attack up here. And while they were fake attacking, he sent the Durhamite infantry around behind some of the local Māoris to support what was going on. And so they showed them how to get through all these marshes and things and up and round behind. So we're going to pretend that you guys are back. You you two rogues. You could be the Durham Light Infantry, okay? And your job is simple. No one gets out. Okay? Not a hard job. You think you can do that? Alright. Okay, you just have to stay awake for a day and make sure no one gets out. And then everyone goes to bed and has a little sleep. And then at 7 o'clock the next morning, you guys are all up and you are at morning prayer, led by Kai uh, Ka and uh, and a Tohonga. And at 7 o'clock in the morning, you guys start your artillery bombardment. And the first two people you kill are the people leading in the morning prayer. So I was glad I wasn't there because that would have been me. Dead in the first few seconds of the battle. You guys didn't do morning prayer. That's interesting, isn't it? And so the bombardment keeps going from seven in the morning till three in the afternoon. Just constant shells landing all around your trenches, in your trenches. It's kind of like if you go to the speedway on the last night and do the firework display, and there's that big bang, bang, and your whole body reverberates, vibrates with those big bangs except it's banging about three metres above your head for eight hours. Just think what that's doing to your ears and all the dust flying around. Every time they land, you wonder whether you're going to die in that in that segment. Eight hours of carrying on. Meanwhile, you guys in the front, you can been the 300 that we're going to charge on the hill. So your guy's name is Forlorn Hope. That's what the, the front guys were always called. And they were called to pull on hope, because these guys were the ones who got shot the most. Uh, and when you got shot in the 1860s, the they didn't have things like anesthetics. And a lot of the time they had to chop your arm or leg off. So they would just, the anesthetic was a bit of leather that they put between your teeth, and then they would hold your arm or leg out, they'd hold you down, and they'd get a saw, and then they'd just chop your arm or leg off. Why are you still awake? And then, if you survive that, there's no antibiotics. That don't come around until the 1930s. And so, there's a good chance that actually some bugs are going to get in there, and you're going to die a slow, horrible death with the infection. So, being in the front few columns was never a great thing. So, these guys, during the bombardment, go away and they get some run, give them some courage and they write any letters they need to write and then they make sure their weapons are ready to go and that they've got their bayonets at the ready and then they line up in their two columns. 150 soldiers, 150 sailors. Captain Hamilton is in charge of the sailors. Colonel Booth is in charge of the soldiers. Three o'clock the bombardment stops, which is of good for you guys, because you were getting a little bit terrified. But that also means now you're going to be attacked. So... in the fence and they march through the fence. And at first they think that everyone's dead. They can't see anyone around. It was expected that the bombardment would kill all of you. It was thought that none of you would survive what happened. And so a message is sent down General Cameron. Congratulations sir, you have won the day. About the, I'm not sure exactly how when where the message was when the fighting started, but I like to think it was kind of in General Cameron's hand. But at that point, you guys are starting to spread out around the trenches. These guys still hiding in the trenches under the railpoint open fire. So who of you would like to be officers? So we say the front row here, you guys are all the officers? Okay, you were killed or mortally wounded in about the first minute. In the first minute, the officer corps of these 300 are taken out. Which means there is no one left to call the shots. The officers are the ones that hold the discipline. And then after that, the hand-to-hand fighting is brutal. And it goes on and on, and more Troop troops to send up into the defense, and eventually... Some of the Māori are popped out. They're popped out the back. So you guys pop out, there's just too many people in the trenches, and you think, well, we'll go home back up to the timelines, you start to walk back up to the timelines, and you guys, you might even start running, and some of you guys start chasing them, so you're coming out of the trenches and chasing them. And what was your job? Don't anyone out. So what do you do when you see these guys come out of the trenches? <coughs> shoot them. So these guys start shooting them. Shooting these guys and some of their own British troops, because so they can't actually tell the difference because it's so wet and nasty. It was a horrible day. And so you guys decide that maybe going home is not the best idea and that you take a chance to in the trenches. So you turn around and you jump back in the trenches. And you guys, you're a little bit worried because Maori are now jumping back in the Shot those of you that followed them, and remember, there was a rumor that King Tapio was bringing over a large army to fight in this battle. So, when these guys start jumping back into the trenches, you guys start to think this is what they have arrived. We are in trouble, and panic spreads across the British lines. The Mali have arrived. And eventually, that panic becomes so great that they break off and leave the trenches and run back down the hill. This is unheard of. British soldiers never retreat. They certainly don't run. But these ones did. They broke discipline. They broke ranks, and they returned back down the hill. When the British newspapers heard about this, they were livid. They were furious. There are still debates about how that could possibly happen. I was talking to a military historian before that Cameron was incompetent; that there was no way that he should have lost that battle. But it is that he lost that battle. He did not achieve his target. His target was to take the path and to obliterate the marines. <coughs> At the end of that first day of fighting, 110 British soldiers lay dead or wounded about 35 were killed, the rest were wounded. Somewhere between 20 to 30 Māori were killed and an unknown number were wounded. The Māori are still in charge of the park. They have survived the first day of fighting. General Cameron was so angry that he refused to go and visit the wounded in the hospital that night. So he left them to it. The Durhamite infantry were left around the back and the sides. <coughs> their orders were still, do not let anyone out. It was his hope the next day that they would do it all again, and he knew that this time they would win, that Maori would have used a lot of their gunpowder, a lot of their ammunition, and they would not be able to resist such a force again. The only trouble was, sometime during the night, the army decided that they, General Cameron was probably right, that they were going to lose the next day, and so they upped stakes and left. They disappeared right through Durham Light Infantry Lines, which kind of raises the question what were you doing? You'll see. Not paying attention. What's Māori were actually really good at getting through British lines, they did it quite a lot. They just knew how to be really silent and they got out about 200 people through those lines. So it wasn't a small number that got through them, it was about 200. And the next day this is what General Cameron found. This is the park. So you have a look at that park, close, you can see the doors, you can see dead Māori down there, this was uh, painted by one of the officers the next day, see the breach in the fence. you have a look at that part? It's not very damaged, is it? That's had eight hours of bombardment. And it came out pretty well. That's how good Māori were at building trenches. You can see in the background here, uh, there you can see British troop uh, wounded being taken away. So Māori and, and British were taken away and treated in the hospital. Uh, the British dead were taken down to the cemetery at Otago, the mission cemetery, by the Harbour Bridge, and they were buried there. The Maori were buried here in the trenches. Most of the trenches, the trenches came from here. We're right out on one side. and We crossed the road. The road wasn't there, and it wasn't that far down. And crossed over the tennis courts and down the hill. So most of the bodies were buried where the tennis courts are now. Uh, bodies were dug up and they came and rode through and they were reburied down in the marsh that was down in the trees before it was all done up so I just want to tell you about a couple of people and then I'll tell you the end of the story so this is the first guy, Henry Henry Williams Henry Williams was the head Anglican missionary in New Zealand so he was named after this person As I said, he was learning to be an Anglican minister so he had to learn to read Greek and Hebrew, and probably Latin, as well as English and Maori. Uh, He was learning all about the Bible and church history and theology and all sorts of good things. He'd been with the New Zealand bishop, Bishop Selwyn, on trips around New Zealand and across to uh, Polynesia. Uh, And he wrote all the letters that were written on behalf of Umiraka. There he is with his flag. The flag, which you can see out there, is the cross, the upside down moon, um, the little star is the star of Bethlehem, and it was on a red colour, which is sacred for Mali. So that was the symbolism of the flag. One of the letters he wrote was this one. Now, in 1864, there was no such thing as a Geneva Convention, which are the rules, folks, which nowadays, when we're civilised and we do our fighting in a civilised way, but we can never do that. Abide by the Geneva Convention, but that wasn't signed, the first version of that, until later in 1864. So there are no rules about how to fight. There are no rules about taking prisoners, and so often prisoners were taken. There were no rules about what to do with wounded of the other side. There were no rules about non combatants, women and children, and people who are armed. There are no rules about people surrender what you should do with them. And so often you just killed them. That was how the war happened. That's what happened in this country. British often did not take prisoners. certainly in the fighting that came after this. So that's a whole lot of words, and that's what it said in summary. The wounded or captured will be saved. Unarmed soldiers will be handed over to the Lord. Any soldier who flees to the house of a priest will be saved unarmed Parker, men and women and children will be safe. Now, the British never agreed to abide by these rules, but <coughs> Maori did abide by these rules. And what is extraordinary about these rules is that you guys, the Maori, they were fighting for their land. The British, we keep thinking the British were the good guys, but actually in this story they're not the good guys. The British were an invading force, They had come here ultimately to take the land off these people. And they knew it. So Māori were fighting for their land, for their way of life, for their families. And even so, they agreed to fight by these rules. They said, yes, we have to fight, but we will do it properly. Now, most of the Māori who were fighting were Christian. There are people who write terrible things in the paper who know nothing and will say some terrible things about Māori. But actually, most of the Māori were Christian and they said, We've given up fighting, but if we have to fight, we will fight as much as possible following our Christian faith. So we will only fight for people who are fighting us and we will treat them with mercy and compassion. I think that's an extraordinary thing throughout our history us European Christians have not been anywhere near as good. At the bottom of those rules, he wrote this passage from Romans. So I saw some of you looking through the Bible. The places you should look at is Paul's letter the Romans. In chapter 12, he wrote, If your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he thirsts, give him, drink. At the bottom of that window there. for well, during the night before Marty disappeared... A number of the British soldiers were dying and were thirsty. They had no water. They were calling out for water. And one of the people that was calling out for water was Colonel Booth. Now, somebody took the water, which was a very dangerous thing to do. It was not unheard of for Maori after a battle to kill wounded British soldiers and to take their am- their guns and their ammunition. That's how you armed yourself. It wasn't unheard of for British soldiers to do similar things. So, war was brutal. It was nasty. And so, if you were a wounded British soldier and you saw a Māori coming towards you after a battle, if you wanted to live, you would, you would shoot them. You would not let them get near you. As well, there are still British soldiers all around here, and there's all the rest of them down there. With their guns, accurate guns that can shoot. Nonetheless, at least one person and maybe a significant number of people took water out to dying British soldiers. Originally it was thought that it was Henry Winamu Taratau That's certainly what Bishop Selwyn his friend, thought and when he retired from being Bishop here and went back to England in his new cathedral he got a window put in that commemorates, remembers Taratau giving that water. But sometime later it, a woman the only woman that was here said it was her. Her name is Henny to Kitty Cutterman. So that was her Maori name, Henny or Jane. And Kitty Cutterman was her husband at this time. So she was about 24, 25 at this point. She was married. She had four little children who had been with her after this battle, while she had been involved in broader campaigns she grown up in the mission house in the Five Islands. Her mother had been taken as a slave when she was a baby by uh, Ngāpui. She came from Rotaru and was taken up there. She was sold to an Irish sea captain for a load of muskets. Uh, he stayed around for long enough for her to get pregnant and then disappeared. She wasn't any use to Ngāpui anymore, so she went to live with the missionary. So Jane Henney grew up as a Christian in a missionary household. She knew how to read and write in French and English and Māori. She knew how to play the piano. She was good at maths and she was also really good at shooting. And so she worked at the mission schools up in the Bay of Islands and then down in Auckland, where she met the children of some of the leaders of the King movement. And she was inspired by what they were trying to do create a place where Māori and European could live side by side. But in the 1860s, when the government said to a Maori living in Auckland, you had to sign a declaration, a pledge saying that you only supported the British crown. She refused to do it. She had to give up her job as a teacher and she joined the, the guerrilla fighters working out of the Hindu Rangers. So she says that she gave the water. And there are a whole lot of people that think she did. And our window there commemorates the fact that it was handy to in who gave the water, and it was her grandson Alfred Foley <coughs> who gave us that window. But actually, there is still a whole lot of people who think that it was Henry Widowu Taratoa. And this year, about two months ago, a book was published, a children's book, that says it was Henry Taratoa. And I'm going to a book launch this afternoon which also says that it was Henry Taratoa. But then if you talk to Piri Lako, who were the Māori Hapu up at Tapuna, well they will say that it was Henny and all of them, all of their fighters here without and gave water to dying British soldiers. So, what do we know? We do know that somebody gave water to Colonel Booth. It may have been Taratai, it may have been Piti Kadamun. Actually, they both both could have gone out and given water, and actually, it could have been them and all of Pirirako. And in the end, it doesn't matter. In the end, what matters is that somebody risked their lives to give water to the commanding officer of the British troops who had just tried to kill them. But just think about that. Think about what you would do. If you were there, if you were a Maori defender, You'd spent all day being bombarded to bits. And then, four to five hundred British troops had entered your par and you had to fight grimly to stay alive. And at the end of that day, a day where you've been fighting to protect your land and your people, those you love, your way of life from this invaded force, at the end of that day one or some of you takes water to their dying soldiers. How many of you think that you would have the grace and the mercy to do that? Hands up if you'd have think you'd do that. There's always a few. I love it. I admire your courage. I'm going to be honest here and say I would really hope that I would do that. But I actually think that I would be too filled with fear and anger and hate to be able to do it. I think, in the end, it would be too hard. And I am inspired by those people who were able to do it, who were able to put aside all of what had just happened and to say, those people down there are my fellow human beings and I need to treat them well and with respect. We had that picture here for about three weeks in front of the altar. It's done by a local artist. Also Henny giving the water. <coughs> Henny actually went, uh, eventually she lived in Kari, Kari. She married an Irish uh, Irishman. Uh, they had a family up there. When he died, she went back to Rotorua where her family were. And she became a very significant Maori leader there. Uh, and there's now a street called Foley Street and she died in her um, in her 90s, that's her in her late 80s. Uh, because she could speak English and Māori, she became a very important figure in the Māori land court. Uh, she was also a significant figure for the uh, figure in the, the Māori woman's Christian temperance leader. So uh, you should do some research on her. She's a really, really interesting and significant, strong woman, a wahine toa Well, the story did end here. Cameron went back, he told Greer that if uh, they ever heard another path being built, that they should attack immediately. On the 20th of June they heard of another path being built up at Taranga. On the 21st of June they attacked that path with cavalry, artillery and infantry and within about 8 minutes, 110 to 150 Maori defenders were killed. The trenches weren't very deep and no means of defending themselves and it is entirely un- no one knows by Pubidake chose to stand and fight. It would have been much better trying to disappear. He had an attack planned for at the British camp for the same time. And it was thought that by stalling and fighting there gave the attackers more time to attack the camp, but that attack came far too late. He was also waiting for reinforcements who did arrive, but again the battle was over. Those who died. We're 110 to 150, including Rāgui Kibirake and Henare Tarataua and other significant Māori Kumatua chiefs. The bodies, again, were buried in the trenches, so when you drive up Highest High Road, Kāne is just past Aquinas College, just as you go down the hill and then go up the hill on the other side to the cemetery, it's on a pad on one side, in fact the trenches went right across the road, you were driving through a cemetery there are bodies on either side of that road and probably under the road. So, think about that as you're driving there. The 110 to 150 Maori defenders who were buried on that site. About 10 years, uh, well, later that later that year, Maori decided they didn't have the resources to fight anymore and surrendered. And they had a whole lot of land confiscated. So that's that's us right there, that's all the land back down to the coast. So all of this land, all of this land was originally confiscated, and this purple land was returned. The only trouble was Oh no, the green land was returned. The less farmable land. The only trouble with returning all of this land was the Crown only thought there was one tribe here, Nicholangi. So they gave it all back to Naitarangi. Unfortunately, it was actually Ngāti Ongi and Ngāti the land that was returned. So it still causes a little bit of grumpiness amongst those two tribes. This land here, which was owned by the Church Missionary Society, that's the group that Alfred Brown worked for, they had their arms twisted up behind their back and they were forced to give that land to the government. And so, land that Brown had acquired to protect that land, to ensure that Māori retained land. He'd seen what had happened in Auckland. When the settlers came, they took everything. Ngāti Whātua, who invited them, soon found themselves without hardly any land at all. That's in point. was the only piece of land they had left. And so he wanted to make sure that Māori had some land here. Well, that was given to the Crown, and that became the military settlement of Tauranga. So, the British soldiers who fought here were able to retire from the army and they were given land as payment. Land here in Upper Britain. So, the first Britishers here, some of them, were people who had fought in this battle. So, the first Brit- European settlers were British soldiers who fought in this land, who fought in this battle. Most of them were About ten years later, on the 10th anniversary of the battle, a whole lot of the soldiers who fought in this battle of together, and they said, actually, we want to honour the Māori who fought here. They fought with honour and bravery and courage and they treated us very well. Their rules were amazing. We've never seen anything like that before. And so they asked for the bodies of Kuhirake and Henari Tadatoa to be dug up. Brown, when he buried them and made sure that they were on top of all the other bodies and going long ways from the trenches, all the others were across. So they were dug up and taken down and buried where all the officers were buried and that's the monument that is down in the Mission Cemetery. So on the military service on the 29th we put the laying wreaths on the monument for the officers, for the British soldiers, for the naval people and then for Puvi for all the Maori people. It was pretty moving stuff. So after this, uh, there was more fighting. There was the bush campaign, which was kind of the British army withdrew from New Zealand at that point. They had enough. Um, some state settlers but the rest went home. Uh, General Cameron went back and eventually was in charge of training British soldiers at Sandhurst. British officers. Uh, the Bush campaign was a brutal, nasty little war where a militia of settlers were trained for rifles went up and they basically burned villages. Any village that looked like it was still supporting the King movement uh, had the crops burned, the villages burned. Uh, it was a terrible, nasty little period in our history. Our city was built because of this battle. The first settlers were British soldiers, uh, partly the reason the battle <coughs> happened here was so that land could be acquired for our, for our city to be built. Uh, and the 29th of April was a chance for us to that You remember that. And you think about while we love living here, the Maori who lived here paid a high price for us to be here. They lost all of their land, which meant they lost their economic base, they lost all their farms, they lost their villages, they lost their way of life. They we're from some of the richest Māori in New Zealand to one of the poorest groups of Māori in New Zealand. So they paid a high price and that price has been paid for a long time. But now land has been returned, their money has been restored and the treaty settlements are going through. So this day, if you were part of that, it was a release of anger and frustration of 150 years of trying to get this far. But I was talking to one of the Iwi leaders out there the next day and he said he hopes we commemorate this every year. You do a big thing that actually can draw people together. Remember the story, remember what happened here, but actually look to the future. Work together and build a better total. So I just spend time out there thinking about what happened on that grass. It's all beautiful now. <coughs> Years ago, it was a mud patch bombarded for the day in heavy rain, uh, light rain. Have a look at the poem. Think about the letters, think about what it commemorates. And uh, look at the tree and see if you can work out what the tree is all about as well. Well, I've probably gone on for too long, but uh, thank you for coming along. Uh, part of the coolest part of my job is actually talking to school groups, so I enjoy doing that. Do uh, you have any questions? Got about ten seconds to ask any questions. Excellent. I explained it all. I bored you to tears. You can work out which one.